Well, I only got halfway through my last week's sermon, which I know is amazing to all of you, and I know you're all bummed out about that. We got out on time, but... So now we're going to finish that. Now, last week we discussed up to verse 4 in chapter 17, and I'll read those real quickly, and we'll have a, a Reader's Digest version of that. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over to me and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come upon the great prostitute who sits on many waters. The rulers of the world have, have had immoral relations with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in spirit up to, into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, written all over with the blasphemies against God. The woman wore purple scarlet clothing of beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. She held in her hand a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of, of her immorality. So brief recap of what we talked about last week. During this particular part in Revelation 17, the world's religious system, there's a world's religious system and there's a world's political and economic system. And we call them the Babylon religion and the Babylon politics. The Bible calls this religious system the prostitute. In other terms, would be harlot or adulterer. That's what, they, that's what God is calling this religious system. And the religious system was basically in cahoots with the political system. You know, we've, always, you know, we've heard in this country the separation of church and state, right? And the world's taken that to mean different things. What that meant was, original meaning was, the government was going to have no control over faith. The government was going to leave faith alone and let faith do whatever it wants to do. It didn't mean that it separated faith from government. It just said that government can't control what we do as, as Christians. Well, in this system, the church or the religious system there is going to be in partnership with the political system. In other words, the political system is going to give favors to the church in response to the church backing up whatever the politics of the day wants to do. And the minute that happens, if it happens here, that's the end of church as we know it. Because now the church is selling out because they want something from the government. And there's a saying that says, if government has the ability to give you everything you want, they're going to have the ability to take everything you have. So we don't want them. We want to be separate and autonomous from them. But in this system, they're going to be combined. They're going to be in partnership with one another. And chapter 17 is telling us the judgment now of this religious system. Verse 1 says, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come upon this great prostitute. And we ended with verse 4. And it said, she held her in her hand a goblet, gold goblet full of obscenities and, and impurities of her immorality. Again, the religion of that day is a religion that looks good on the outside. And one seems to like it. But you look on the inside of it, it's not, it's wicked. And it's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Verse 25 says, you are careful to clean out the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, you first wash the inside of the cup, and then the outside will become clean too. How terrible it will be for teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurities. You try to look upright you look, try to look like upright people outwardly but inside your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness now you hear words like that 
how often do you, do you think Jesus talks like that? We all think that Jesus is, you know, meek and mild and doesn't do anything to offend people. I mean, he was pretty in your face. And he was in your face to what? The people that were running, running the religious system. He wasn't that way to the people. He was that way to the leaders of the people. And so, it's, you know, it's easy to watch TV and there's all these, it's called um, heresy hunters. How many have heard of that term? That's people looking for heresy in, in sermons everywhere, you know. We have to be careful what we listen to and careful what we read, careful who we follow. Make sure that who you follow follows God's word and not just wants to be famous or has their own little thing going on. So we're going to pick up at verse 5. And it says, A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. Now the word, word Babylon comes from the word Babel. Back in Genesis, you know, he had the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel represented man's pride and rebellion against God, right? In other words, we're going to build this tower. We're going to make it up to, up to heaven. We're going to make this thing. We're going to be like God. And what did God do? Tore it down, confused the languages, and kind of scattered them. Their pride and rebellion was scattered. And now Babylon, which is referred to in, the, in Revelation, is, again, a symbol of man's pride and rebellion against God. And the Bible says about a mystery because it says Babylon the Great or a mysterious name was written. Well, a mystery in the Bible is something that has not yet been revealed to someone. Colossians 1.26 says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. Ephesians 1.9 says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Now, what was the mystery in, in the New Testament time? The mystery was the church age. The Jews always thought it was going to be one continuous thing. But if you look at the timeline, there's, I won't go into depth on this because I don't have it prepared, but it talks about the 70 weeks. There's a 69 weeks up to the death of Christ. Now there's a pause. That timeline stops. That, from then until the tribulation is the church age. That's the mystery, that God was going to incorporate the Gentiles into this. God was going to in, just save the world. That's the mystery. And the mystery was revealed. It was held. It was not revealed in the Old Testament, but it was revealed in the New Testament. That's what Paul is saying in both of these things. Now the mystery is known. The mystery was the church age. And the, mystery, the mysterious name is showing that the world, the world, the character of all the false religions. In other words, He's going to, they're going to show and expose in Revelation the mystery, and the mystery is that this church is not a true church. This church is, what I write here, false religions, cults, sorcery, astrology, witchcraft, fortune-telling, spiritism, secular humanism, New Age philosophies, and the occult. All up to this point, they've not been revealed as being a part of this church. Now it's going to be revealed in this sentence right here. And all these from the beginning have been the result of man's pride and rebellion. Why do people have false religions? Why is there false cults? Why is there sorcery? I used to wonder, why, why are there cults? If, if people are not saved and they're going to go to hell, why, do we, why does the devil need false cults? And why do 
does the devil need all these other things to follow? Because people follow something. People want to worship something. And the more options you give them to worship, they're going to worship. And they're going to look to for answers. I know people that are into this kind of stuff, and they really think that this, the answers come from this, you know, crystals and fortune telling and palm reading and all that stuff. They really think that they're going to get information from this. People want information about the future. They want information about their life, and they want something to follow. And that's why the enemy has created all these things, and all these things are basically because man is rebelling against the one thing that can help you, the one person that can really do anything in your life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So even from Babylon until now, and it's going to be in the tribulation, there's going to be a whole group of things that are going to fall under this false religion. And the Bible says it's going to be exposed. That mystery is going to be exposed. Verses 6 and 7 says, I could see that she was drunk. This is the, the prostitute. Drunk with the blood of God's holy people who are witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her completely amazed. Why are you amazed, the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Jesus, or John sees this woman again. Again, this woman is a personification of the world system. You put the world system as one person, you're going to see this, this person. And she is intoxicated. It's another word that she, is, she delights in, her, in the death of the saints. Now, the NIV and most other versions say it this way, verse 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. She's drunk with the blood of the people that have been martyred and those who were martyred for their testimony. Now, some people think this could be two different groups, those killed during the tribulation and maybe those who were killed in the Old Testament, New Testament ages before the, before the rapture. If that's the case, the woman is drunk with the, with the success of killing God's people all the way since Cain killed Abel. Persecution of God's people has always existed and will continue and culminate in the reign of the Antichrist. And the Bible says they will, they will kill you thinking they're doing God a favor. You know, you look at pictures and stories of, we'll just go back to World War II, and it seemed like people got pleasure out of killing Jews. And you wonder, how can people ever, you know, how can people be so confused and to do that? Yet a whole nation, several nations, combined to do that. And they enjoyed what they were doing. And, you know, we, we, we look at Hitler and, and Germany as being horrible, and it was. But Hitler had nothing on Mao. He had nothing on Stalin. Mussolini, those guys killed millions and millions of their own people. Way more than Hitler ever thought about. And you wonder why, why do we look at, we, why do we forget those and we look at Hitler as the thing? Well, because they killed their own people. Mao killed his own Chinese people. Pol Pot killed his own people. Mussolini killed his own nation people. So you look at this and you wonder, how can people be excited about you know, and 
drunk with the excitement of killing people. It's been happening forever. And all of it has been influenced by demonic powers. And even if those who persecute us don't realize it. We look at situations like that and Hitler and all those guys, and you realize who is behind all of this? The devil wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So he will do all he can to do that. So every evil thing that's being done is orchestrated by the enemy. 2 Timothy 3.11 says, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not might, will. Right now, we've been living pretty peacefully in this world, in our country. But verse 13 says, but evil people and imposters will flourish. Man, every time you read the news, you think evil's winning. More and more, just more and more evil. And it says, they will go on deceiving others and they themselves will be deceived. All the people that are making decisions in the world now, they're deceived in the thinking that what they're doing is right. They think that what they're... I think a lot of them have personal interests involved, but they're thinking that what they're doing policy-wise is right, but they're deceived. Verse seven goes on and says, why are you so amazed, the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns. Now the New American Standard gives us a better understanding of the verse and it reads this way. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? What John was seeing was a a false religion seemingly not being judged. And he wondered, are you going to judge this? Why is all this happening? Lord, you're not doing anything. And the angel asked him, do you wonder? In other words, don't you remember what God said about all the judgment that is coming? Let me tell you about this vision that you're wondering about. You're seeing all these things happen, this, this prostitute enjoying herself, killing all God's people, and you're wondering where God's judgment is. And the angel says, let me tell you what's coming. And verse eight says, and he, he describes it to her, it says, the beast you saw was alive but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world began, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. Now, at first glance, you think that this is the Antichrist, but it's not. This is not the guy who had the mortal head wound in chapter 13. Rather, this beast, it's the world political system that has existed in the past, Babylon, Rome, but has not existed in the same form since the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, this is, we're going to go back into Daniel's book because they kind of dovetail together. Remember Daniel's statue? The head was gold, chest was silver, belly and thighs were bronze, legs of iron, and feet mixed with iron and clay, each of those symbolizing a weaker material, therefore a weaker national power. Well, we've had no world ruler like they've had since the fall of the Roman Empire. A lot of people have tried, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, the UN, the World Court League of Nations, they've all tried to have one rule order, and all have failed. But now, there is. So when it's talking about the beast you saw that was alive but isn't now, that's the one world ruler like it was in Roman time. Others have come 
but have not succeeded. So now it says he is alive now. And that is the one world system that the Antichrist is forming. And the, the success of the Antichrist is going to make this one world government and is going to amaze people that it all came under one ruler. Now anyone who is here at this point are those who's, who have taken the mark and have not accepted Christ. And therefore, those are the folks whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And since they don't have their names in the book, they will also be condemned. Now we skip to the end of the, end of the book, Revelation 20, 15. It says, anyone whose name was not found in, recorded in the Book of Life was thrown into the lake of fire. How many know what the Book of Life is? How many have heard teaching on when you become a Christian, you come to the altar and you confess your sins and you accept Christ as your Savior, the Bible says your name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now the Bible also says that your name can be taken out, but right now it's written in the book. If you live your entire life and you never confess Christ, your name's not in the book. And when you die, your name can't be written in the book because you're dead. And the Bible says... Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. That's why we're so big on getting the gospel out. Because we want people's names in the book. We want all those folks we're praying for on that cross and, and many more, we want their names in the book. We don't want, the Bible says that hell was not ever created for man. Man was never meant to go there. But we go there because we refuse what God says. You know, people ask you, how can God send anyone to hell? God doesn't send anyone to hell. You choose to go there. You, God's offered a way out of there. And you haven't chosen it. God says, here, here it is. It's a free gift. Christ died for you. All you gotta do is believe it. And so what happens is, you live your life in this world without God, God says, okay, you can have what you want. You don't want to have God here? I'm not going to make you have God after you die. So you're going to go to a place that there is no God, which is the absolute pit of hell. Verse 9 goes on and says, and now understand this. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills of the city where this woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Now this verse is going to help you understand the, the vision. In ancient boundary of Jerusalem, there were not seven hills. If you expand the boundary of Jerusalem, there's more than seven hills. So what's he talking about? Well, in New Testament times, Rome was known as the city of seven hills. That was their, that was their, that was how they were known. Kind of like we know the Big Apple is New York. Not its name, but we call it the Big Apple because that's what we call it. Well, Rome was called the city of seven hills. So when he's writing this, people in that contemporary time would know exactly what he's talking about. So John, or God wants John to know that they were in the Roman stage of history when this, of this world system. In other words, the city of seven hills, people got to understand that means Rome. So when you look at the, going back to the statue, the legs of iron from Daniel's statue. In John's day, Rome was united against true believers in Christ. And that resulted in God's judgment against that empire. So if we start with the timeline of Rome to where we are now, there hasn't been any ruler. 
any world ruler. And verse 10 goes on and says, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and one has yet to come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. So up to this point, the five kings that have fallen in John's day are the kings of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Those are the five kings that are gone. And so five have fallen. One is coming, and one is not yet here. The current one is Rome, where we said John is, and seventh is the current system they're going to have at that particular point. The feet of iron and clay. Some nations strong, some weak, but all unable to cling together. That's what we see right now in this world. There's a bunch of nations, can't agree on anything. It's, they're all, you know, some are strong nations like us, some are weaker nations. That's the feet of iron and clay. Daniel 2.43 says, this mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But this will not succeed just as iron and clay do not mix. So the world system we have now, that's the one that is, and then there's one that's coming. We're in the feet of iron and clay, various nations, none combined, we can't make a one ruler thing. But now we come to verse 11. It says, the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. Now the beast has seven heads, but the beast itself is a head. That's the eighth. So you have one big head, that's the eighth head, and seven little heads. I feel like I'm reading something out of Isaac Asimov or something, but he's the eighth. He's not one of the seven, but rather he belongs to and culminates the Babylon system that's already there. And it says, he along with all the others are gonna go to destruction, verses 12 through 14. It says, his 10 horns and 10 kings have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for a brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give their power and authority to him. Together they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them because he is Lord over all lords, king over all kings, and his people are called and are all the called and chosen and faithful ones. So the ten horns are all these countries that are going to exist at that particular time. What we've seen now in this age, we can't come together. There's not going. There's no alliances. We don't really form. We us and Britain probably the only alliances that are out there. But these all these ten nations are going to. They're going to all agree. They're all going to come together and say, "Okay, we are all on board with this. You have the power. We're going to give you our our the authority, and we're going to back you up." And it also says they've not risen to power yet. So John's talking about what's current time in Rome. This is a future event. And it's going to happen at the end of the church age. It's not happening during John's time. It's going to happen at the end of the church age. Going back to Daniel's statue, it says in Daniel 2.34, But as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain by supernatural means. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. It hits during our current time, not during all the other empires or kings. Verse 13 says, They all agreed to give their power and authority to him. All these nations align. They give themselves to the Antichrist, being of one mind, one purpose. Then, that's when the rock comes out. Verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords, King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So what we're doing, we're now jumping to the end of the battle at tribulation. 
this is the battle that's coming is the angel saying this is going to happen in the future you're in the tribulation now not too long from now all these nations are going to get together and they're going to come against israel they're going to come against god's people and as one nation and what happens is they all combine they're getting ready to fight and all of a sudden god comes christ comes with all of us saints now you gotta you ever ask yourself if the enemy knows the end why does he even try the bible says he knows the word right demons know the word they tremble so why does why does he even try the bible says christ is also joined by believers in this final battle in other words we get to be part of this great victory the victory will be Jesus's, but we get to share in the results. We get to be there to see it. I'm excited for that. Verse 16 through 18 says, the beast and the 10 horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So up to this point, we're going to call it the church, but even though it's not the church, the church and the government were aligned. They were one. The government helped the church as long as the church helped the government. Well, chapter 18, we're going to see that the government's going to say, okay, we're, we don't need you anymore, and we're going to destroy you. So there's the alliance that's going to break. The government and the political and economic system is going to destroy the religious system of that day. They will, they will say it takes away from everyone worshiping the Antichrist. The Antichrist rises to power. He's the one guy. The ten nations are behind him. He wants all the worship. The religious system of the day is kind of taken away from that. They all want to be over there. So he's got to kill them or destroy that so he gets their worship. Everything that falls into that ecumenical group that we talked about last week, the enemy is going to destroy. The harlot that enjoyed the destruction of believers will now herself be destroyed. Think about that for a moment. You see something that happens in the future, how does that relate to today? The devil will give you what you want up to a point but when he no longer needs you, he'll destroy you. Think about this. The enemy tempts you to sin. He says, come on, do it, it's great, you'll, you'll love it. And the minute you sin, who's the first one to condemn you for singing, sinning? The enemy. He jumps right on you and condemns you for doing what he told you to do. The enemy will use you as long as you're useful, as long as you're doing something that he wants you to do and how you affect other people, the minute that you stop being useful to him, he'll destroy you as well. Now this happens in the middle of the tribulation when the Antichrist declares himself to be God and at that moment demands that the whole world system worship him. So he's got to get rid of the fake stuff over there and so he does that, he now gets worshiped. But as the Antichrist destroys the harlot, what he's actually doing, he's carrying out God's judgment on the religious system. 
Just like God used Assyria and Babylon to judge Israel, he's now going to use the Antichrist to judge the false religions. I closed this sermon a couple of weeks ago with this thing. The two quotes we gave and we've been using for a while. Prophecy isn't meant to scare us, but prepare us. Bible prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious, but encouragement for the serious. Got a lot of, a lot of tough imagery these past couple of weeks. But if we only do that because we're curious and wanna, we're fascinated with this kind of prophecy, we're missing the reason that God, why would God write this book if Christians aren't gonna be here? Why do we need to study it? We're not gonna be here. Why do we care? When we read the verse, God blesses those who read it and those who hear it. It should encourage us because we see what's coming down the pike. Think about maybe 50 years ago, maybe this stuff wasn't as preached as much. Or you look at the world system and you think, well, it's never going to be that way. I was watching a uh, documentary about Don McLean. How many know who Don McLean is? Wrote the song American Pie. They did like an hour and a half special on why he wrote it, what was going on at the time, and you know, the meaning behind the song. If you ever listen to the song, you want to know the meaning of it. According to this documentary, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you think all these images you're reading in the song, but, but they were showing clips of the 60s when, when the song was written. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what? That's the same as we saw a year ago. Riots and burning and all that kind of stuff. What's the Bible say? There's nothing new under the sun. So we think it was great 50 years ago. It was different. But it probably wasn't great. Then you go back into the 50s and all the things that were happening then, all the segregation and things were going on in the 50s and we, we glorify the 50s. A lot of horrible things going on in the 50s. Nothing's new under the sun. Things that are happening today, nothing new. Maybe they're new for us, but they've been around for a while. The book was written so that we understand what's coming. We need to have a burden about what's coming. We're not going to be here to affect any change. We're not going to be here to win people to Christ. We're not going to be here to help people. We're going to be gone. Our help and our ability to change people's lives is today. It's not going to happen during this time. I think God wants us to really get an image of what is going to happen so that we are burdened with the horrible things that are going to happen. We think it's bad now with the riots we see now. Ain't nothing compared to the horror that's going to come upon the world in this time. And we need to be, as the quote says, it's encouragement for the serious. And I think we had awesome time in prayer. God spoke to us. I believe God's going to do great things and heal and, and do what he said he was going to do. But why is all that happening? It's not just for us. It's for us, but it's not just for us. All these things happen in order to get other people's attention for what God is doing. Jesus would do miracles, but he did miracles in order to be able to talk to the people who came for the miracle. When we leave today and we experience what God's going to do, we don't keep it to ourselves. 
That's a testimony. That's what you can tell other people about what God's doing for you. Get people curious. Hey, what's God doing in the assembly? Something weird's going on there. I gotta see what's going on. Bring them in. And God can do for them what he did for us. It's meant to get people's attention. And, I'm a, and God does it not only to bless us, but for us to be a blessing. You talk to people, I'll close with this. You talk to people, and they may or not, may not believe the Bible. They may or not believe in church. But your testimony is what happened to you, what God did for you. So either they believe you or they don't believe you. You don't have to bring the Bible into it any time. You give them, look, God did this specific miracle for me. And if they know you and they trust you, they're gonna believe it. Or they'll at least be curious about it. How did that, I can't explain it, but how did that happen? Your testimony is as powerful as God's word because your testimony contains God's word of what God did for you. Not what God's doing for everybody else, but what God did for me. And you either think I'm a liar or you trust what I'm saying to you. And if you know them and your family, your friends, they're gonna trust you and they're gonna get curious about, man, you know, I, I believe, you know, he's not a liar. And he said God did, did this, so I'm, I'm guessing it's true. And you've opened the door. And God can get in there and start working with whatever scriptures you're able to share with them. And each one of us here can say, God changed me. I was thinking on the way into work today, how I was before I got saved and how I was like right after I got saved. And it was, when, you're, when you first get saved, it's, you know, it's really exciting. I remember, man, I was watching Christian TV all the time. There was this show on called Light Music and it was about contemporary, this is in the mid 80s, contemporary Christian music and rock and roll Christian music. I'm into that, and, and I'm, we go out and we buy all these decorations for the house, you know, Christ, Christmas or Christian decorations for the house, none of which I would have done ever before that one time. That's how God changes your mind. He transforms your mind. And then you grow and mature as a Christian, but instantly God changes your mind. And up to that point, no one would believe that would ever happen to me. So all the people you think it's never gonna happen to, that's who it's gonna happen to. <laughs> and you keep believing that God's gonna do it. You keep praying that God's gonna break through and you pray whatever it takes because whatever it takes is better than this and what's gonna happen. Would you stand as we close this morning? Will you bow your heads for a moment? And I'm pretty sure that everyone here has been in this church for a while. But there's no guarantee that just because you've been in this church for a while that you know Jesus, that you've actually committed your life to him. Being in a church doesn't save you. Committing, committing your life to Christ and asking him to forgive you of your sins, that's what makes you a Christian. And if you're here this morning and you've, you've heard this maybe over and over again, and you know about Jesus, but you never really came to the point where you confessed your sins to him, you know you're a sinner. The Bible says we're all sinners. We all fall short of what God expects of us. 
And the Bible says, well, the, the wages for that sin, well, that's death. That's separation from God. But the Bible also says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it's a gift. It's a gift that God has already paid for through Christ. His death was your payment for your sin and mine. His resurrection just verified that everything he said and did was true. And he's alive right now. But like any gift, you have to receive it. You have to come up and say, yes, I want that gift. I believe it's a gift and I want it for me. The Bible says, as many as believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. You have to confess with your mouth and you have to believe in your heart that Jesus is true, the gospel is true, and that you're, the truth is you're a sinner, the truth is I'm a sinner, and the truth is I can't make it to heaven on my own. I need Jesus. I need the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And because of that, the light bulb will go off in your head and you'll get it. You'll understand. You won't know everything, but you'll understand it. So if you're here and you want to have that light bulb experience, you want to walk away going, man, I get it now. You don't have to go out and buy a bunch of Christian stuff, but your mind's going to be changed. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you. All right, like I said, I'm going to believe they're all committed followers. If we're not, if you're like me, you're just shy, you don't want to raise your hand, God will take his time with you. He's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish. All come to repentance. God's going to get you. Whether you want him to or not, God's going to get you. Father, we do thank you that you got us. We're thankful, Lord, that you did whatever it took in our lives to get our attention. And we came to know you. And our life and our, and our ministry and everything we have is, is a thousand times better because we know you. And our eternity is secure because we've trusted in Jesus. And not only that, Lord, your word, as we prayed this morning, you've given us prom promises that we live by every day. It's not just heaven that we're getting, although that would be enough. But your word says that while you're here, I'll also take care of you. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here. The things we prayed before, we believe you're gonna do. You're gonna do it. Not we're not cocky, we're not arrogant. We just trust your word. We, we know that we deserve nothing. We don't earn anything. But we believe what your word says, that you love us as a father loves us. And you'll take care of us like a dad takes care of us. So Lord, bless us as we leave today. Let us live this entire week excited for what we expect to see in answers to prayer. And again, we ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night. And then next Sunday. And then the following Wednesday. Then the following Sunday, every time.